You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, like machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today I'm joined by Major General Pat Robertson, who's the commanding general of the U.S. Army John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and School. Sir, welcome to The Spear. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate it. So for our listeners, you've been on the MWI podcast before, but today we're going to tell a more personal story. Could you tell us a little bit as we lead into that about how you wound up in the Army? Yeah, I wound up in the Army. Uh, I'm, I'm from Minnesota, and my father had been in the Army. He was a Korean War veteran, and he'd been shot. Uh, and he had a large scar on his hand and a large scar on his knee, and I always used to ask about that. And he said, hey, I got shot in Korea. That's really all I knew, and my father died when I was pretty young. But uh, because of that, and because I always wanted to be in the Army, all of my relatives had been in the military. All of my teachers had been in the military. Uh, I always thought it was just something that you did, so I wanted to be in the, the military also, particularly the Army, like my dad had been. And what drew you to the infantry? Well, I had some very good NCOs at my ROTC program. They were Special Forces NCOs, a succession of two that said, hey, if you want to be anything in the Army, you should probably be in the infantry uh, and then maybe you can go special forces after that or, or whatever but that was the idea uh, they were role models they'd all been in the infantry before and it was more of the NCOs than, than the officers because they're with you they're training you they had a huge influence on what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be. How long did you spend in the infantry before going special forces? Well I actually was in the, uh, the Minnesota National Guard for a while and I was in 11 uh, Charlie, a mortarman. So I was in the infantry. I'd, I'd enlisted in 1985, and I probably got out in 1986. So I'd been doing that for four years. And then I, when I was commissioned in 1990, I went right to the infantry officer basic course, and I went to SF selection in 94. So I guess I would say I spent four years in the infantry in the 82nd Airborne Division. Your roles in Special Forces, what have you done? In Special Forces, I, was a, uh, I went right to 10th group out of uh, our qualification course, and I was a team leader. And I went to 10th group because at the time that seemed to be the most interesting theater because they had Europe, and it was at the time when the Balkan War was going on. Um, and I got to go to Bosnia 
two rotations to Bosnia as a team leader, but the first mission that I had was the day that I got to 10th group. We had a, uh, it's called the MCC, the Military Coordination Center in Northern Iraq. Uh, and one team, one ODA, got to go to this uh, center in Zaku, and this was 1990, I think it was 1996, uh, I think, spring of 1996. And the minute I set foot on ground, they're like, hey, we have to send a team into northern Iraq. Uh, you'll be the only team in northern Iraq. You're kind of going to monitor the uh, security zone. They didn't call it Zas at the time. They called it, I think, Green Green Zone. It was the area where Saddam couldn't go into. And they said, do you want to do that? I'm like, yes, I would like to do that. They're like, you leave in a week. I'm like, great, great. So that was the first mission that I ever had. I spent uh, three months in northern Iraq with Turkish commandos, Turkish special forces, French pilots and the British, I think they call them aviation infantry, a small contingent, probably not more than 20 people, with Kurdish uh, militia with us. And we basically went all over northern Iraq, checking to make sure that uh, basically Saddam's army wasn't bothering the Kurds. And it was, a, it was a great, great mission. Every day we were out doing either by helicopter or by uh, ground mostly in an area that we you could consider to be the the KDP the Kurdish Democratic area of northern Iraq. And I got to see a lot of what Turkey was doing on the border and how they dealt with this PKK insurgency. So I learned a lot on that rotation. Then we came back and I went to Bosnia and we we did a mission called the Joint Commissioned Observer, you know, program where we got to live uh on the economy. Uh the first rotation I did was in a place called Burka, which was south of a place called Birchko, which is on the Zas, between the Serbian portion of um, Bosnia, Herzegovina, and the Bosniak Muslim part. On the next rotation, I was in Birchko, which was the Serb portion. So I got to live in one area um, of Bosnia, which was one ethnic area, and then I got to live in another area on the next area. So that was my team leader time. Then I, I became the assistant S3. I went to CGSC. I went to Naval Postgraduate School, got a degree. I came back uh, to 10th group, and immediately upon coming back, it was 2002, uh, we were getting ready to invade. We'd already invaded Afghanistan, and we knew we'd gotten the warning order as 10th group that we were going to invade uh, Iraq. Since I was the last person, and I didn't, I didn't mention this in the, the part about northern Iraq, I was the last team leader to do that mission because Saddam invaded while I was there. The Patriotic Union of Kurdistan had done a deal with Iran and uh, Saddam to basically attack into the area we were at and it was a little chaosy action um, and we had to withdraw back into Turkey. So I was the last team leader that had been in uh, northern Iraq. So when the idea came forward that hey we're going to invade Iraq again and we're going to invade Iraq through the north because 10th group is a European Turkey based organization and I was a major and as majors in special forces, your company commanders, you have six teams underneath you. The battalion commander basically said, hey, I've got the last team leader that's ever been in northern Iraq. He probably knows some of these people. So they said, hey, Major Roberson, you should be the advanced force operations uh, company commander. So uh, basically, I got to be the advanced force operations company commander, which, mean, which meant not only did I have my regular company uh, in 10th group, I had a team from every company in 10th group and there was two battalions so that that also means another six uh teams and i had to i had to plan the initial infiltration of uh 
northern Iraq, got to do that. It was very neat. Some of us went in by a truck with the Turkish intelligence. I got to go in on a bus as PSD for our State Department people that were doing some post-war planning. We had planned on going in by air, but it just didn't work out. It was kind of a, an incredible story, actually, about planning to do something and then having things change and change and change. So we were the only people in uh, northern Iraq when the war started. We, our job was to get the Kurds to be, hey, work with us and uh, help us fight Saddam, which you'd think would be an easy job. That was not a very easy job to do. They didn't want to do it in the beginning. But through some charming people, we were able to convince them that they should probably do it. And they did, in the end. We had to help them attack some Islamic extremists. Ansar al-Islam was the name. They were on the Iranian border. Before they would help us, we had to get rid of these people for them, or destroy them, or whatever you want to call it, which we did. Then they helped us take Kirkuk. They helped us take Mosul. When the war in the south starts, that was what we were doing. We were fighting with the Kurds to take these um, cities in the north. Um, and hold down uh, Saddam's army in the north. I think he had, I don't know, 13 divisions up there to hold them in place, which we did. So I rotated out of that. I became an XO in, uh, for a battalion. Um, maybe three months later, I came back to Mosul, where we had a, a FOB, where we, we put teams out all over Mosul and the northern part of Iraq. So that was one rotation. Came back. On the next rotation, I was a task force commander. My job there, this is probably in, this, I started out probably in the December of 2004 on this rotation, so this would have been my third rotation into, into OIF, because I already done one and provide comfort. My job was to basically stand up the brigade headquarters for two special Iraqi units that we were building at the time. And now it's kind of, uh, you know, blasé that you would do like a, I don't know, security force assistance, or you'd build a partner force. At that time, that was something that was new, right? We had, in Baghdad, we had built what was called the Iraqi Counter-Terrorist Force, and we were working with them and using them every night. They're probably the best Iraqi force that we had in the country at the time. We probably had got them up to company level at about that time. And in the north, we were working with an organization called the 36th Commando, uh, which was mostly Kurds. Uh, and the idea was, hey, let's bring everybody to Baghdad at this time, uh, we'll have two battalions, one battalion of ICTF, one battalion of 36 Commando. We'll merge them together. We'll call them um, ISOF, and we'll make it a brigade. We'll call it the ISOF Brigade, the Iraqi Special Operations Force Brigade. And when we do that, since it's 2005, we have lots of work to do. There's missions to be done every day. It's, you know, the basically AQI is taking over large swaths of the country. Sadr City is under the control of, you know, Shia militants. So we'll operate out of Baghdad because that seems to be uh, one of the worst areas. And we can either truck or we can fly and we can, or we can take back large swaths of territory from the enemy, uh, whatever that may be. But let, let's get this thing going and up and operational quickly. So that was the, my third uh, rotation as a task force commander. And again, I think at this time, it's good to put yourself back in time a little bit and think about what was going on in the sense of things seem very clear, I think, right now. And, and how we, as least as in special forces or soft in general, would approach this, we would find partners, we'd build a partner force, and we would get after the enemy. Because that's probably, first of all, it's probably the most legitimate way to fight in a lot of these places with a partner particularly with a very good partner. You connect that partner to the, to the government somehow, 
later on the the this ISOF brigade you know it works under a um, like a ministry of uh, they call it CTS the counterterrorist ministry you know we, we kind of replicated a lot of these things as we went on and we were doing it because we had to get after you know the enemy and it was our, our determination that hey we're never gonna fully understand what we're up against unless we can partner with Iraqis that have a very good understanding about what's going on. We had a very good uh, intelligence, you know, wing to what we were doing. It wasn't just, it wasn't just uh, a fighting force that we had. We'd built a reconnaissance squadron, an intelligence squadron, all these things that would seem very, I guess, maybe normal right now. Maybe. To me, they seem normal. It's hard for me to play to figure out exactly what other people think are the best ways to operate. But for us, this seemed like, okay, this is the best way to operate. Uh, we develop targets. Human intelligence helps us with this. We use technical means to, to back this up. And then we can go after very small point targets, whether it's individual personalities, caches, etc. Or, at that time, uh, we had like AQI taking over large segments of uh, Iraq. So then it wasn't very hard to just go in and say, okay, we want this Salman Pak, I think is where, what I'm going to talk about today. We want this area back because this place was just uh, looted and destroyed by AQI. So we were going to go fl- do a flyaway and restore order to this, this area. Um, and when we, when we look back at that time, you know, it's pre-surge and this time is a pretty rough time. Uh, we were losing a lot of people ourselves and this idea of a civil war in Iraq is kind of developing too between the Shia militia groups and um, really AQI and you have you have lots of things going on you have you have AQI and they're destroying Shia mosques they're attacking Shia civilians they're trying to re redistrict a lot of uh, Baghdad which is a mixed city between Shia and uh, Sunni so you got this internal civil war um, we're trying to I think restore order and destroy the insurgents that are after us. That was our mission set. I would say build this force while at the same time that you're building this force, you know, get after the enemy as best you can. And at that time, later on, you know, we were very, we were much more refined in saying, okay, um, I'm only going to go after a target set of a Shia target set. Other people are going to go after the AQI target set, or I'm just going to do AQI. Um, and or we actually had expanded the mission where we had uh, you know battalions in Mosul, a battalion in Basra, a battalion out out west in Anbar. That's later on. But at this time, there was only really two battalions, and we basically said we'll do whatever where we, wherever we can make the most impact. We'll go to Sadr City, we'll go to Ramadi, we'll do whatever. We'll fly away, we'll drive, uh, whatever is the biggest problem for um, the Iraqi government and the United States military. We'll, we'll take that on. So is that how Salman Pak was picked as your next destination? Yeah, I think, I think at this time, we'd been doing a lot more missions that were just maybe company, company size with a, a, um, a set of advisors and a company of Iraqi soft, you know, ICTF. And usually it would be, we are going to go after one personality on one at one location. It's, and that's, I don't want to say that's easy because that can be rather difficult because that person can have an entourage of bodyguards. It could be, you know, an AQI convention that you didn't know about. You know, they could be doing their human resources fair, whatever. You roll up on them. It's a, it's a shootout. But, but a lot of times what we were doing up until that point was really one, maybe two targets. And then sometimes if you're going after one target, 
you could flex and do, okay, he's not here. We think he's in another area. He, he's in another. As time goes on, we, we began to more figure out like, okay, he can be in one of five places. Maybe we should go to all five places simultaneously. That wasn't something I think that we kind of, our intelligence wasn't quite as good then. Maybe we could do two places at one time. But a lot of times, even till even to right now, it would be like if I'm going after, you know, target X, I think that target X with reasonable certainty is in this structure. He's in this house. He's in this location. Uh, and we were doing a lot of those things. And one target is, that's pretty, pretty basic um, at that time. The Solomon Pock piece was more about, okay, this is an area that had been taken back by um, AQI. Like they had, they had really come up in mass and taken this back. We had had informants that had come forward um, and basically said, we know where a lot of the insurgents are at. They're in this, this area. So as I remember the planning for this whole mission and, and many, of the, many of the Iraqi police that had been there, their cars were burned. You know, it's the usual kind of scene of pillage and looting. They'd lost 30, 30 folks in this, this fight and had left. Uh, but we had informants from them or, and intelligence-wise. So we, we could see this objective. It's a pretty large city we had to decide, okay, we're, we will divide. The way we were doing this, and again, this is like one of the, not the first time, but one of the first times that we were able to do this. We have a large enough force that we've put together that we can actually like divide this city into quadrants uh, and basically say, okay, we're going to only fly because it's too far to drive. The risk to us of going through enemy-held areas is too great. We'll, we'll only use 47, so it'll be a pretty massive uh, air assault type operation. 47s are always best for that. We also wanted to bring our vehicles with us. So 47s were the best option to do that, to put like Toyota Tacomas. And this is pre-Razor. Razor would have probably been the, the vehicle of choice if we're doing it now, but we, we would call it Rapids. And we would basically put Toyota Hiluxes in the back uh, with Forerunners. So we, we decided, hey, this is a big objective. Uh, we need vehicles to do this. It's not going to work if we don't have vehicles. So we decided that we'd bring 47s just it's better than driving because driving would have been we know we would have lost people just driving to the the objective and plus if you're bringing vehicles you can put weapons on top it's a lot it's just a lot easier to get get through there like crew serve weapons 50 cals etc those are just better things to have on an objective uh, like this particularly since they had uh, aqi had come through in force on this uh, mission uh, but again this is one of the first times that we had done this now this would be kind of It'd be pretty pretty easy. This would be a standard kind of an operation, I think, for us now. But back then with our partners, this was something new. We divided up the objective. The objective, you know, we had phase lines, obviously, all types of barriers. And usually within that objective, there are places w that we've marked and said, hey, we know that, you know, personality X is here. We think personality Y is here. Personality Z is here. So you're looking at a map gridded out of this objective. You know you're going to land here at this time. Hopefully you have AC-130 coverage. ISR was something that we were just figuring out how to use at this point. And this one, because it's a big operation, we had AC-130s. It was one of the first times, it wasn't the first time that I'd used an AC-130, but it was one of the first times that, you know, we're communicating with the AC-130. He's looking over the, the target, you know, he's, he's loitering over it. He's telling you what he's seeing, which is something that we weren't usually used to having uh, previously to this. Now we would be very we'd be very uncomfortable if we didn't have that now. But back then, that was something that was different and new for us. 
So basically, uh, we had done all the planning. Our Iraqis were very good. The 36th Commando and the ICTF at this point didn't exactly get along that well, so we had to divide the objective up to make sure that they weren't really going to, um, I don't know, shoot each other kind of thing. One was mostly Kurd, the other is mostly Arab, so it wasn't. we're trying to get them to work together better. So there's a lot of internal dynamics going on, then external dynamics where you're working against an enemy that's pretty capable. Plus we had, I think we had brought numerous informants along on this operation to ID the people that we were going to, you know, apprehend, whether we killed them dead or alive. It's hard, it's hard to figure out if you're going after specific personalities at this time who they are, right? You're going into a place, even though you may even have pictures of them, it's really hard to tell, like, at night, okay, do I have this guy or not? Because they're not going to say who they are. They're not going to tell you who they are. Uh, so always having somebody that can ID them is a, is a big deal. So we brought vehicles, we brought dogs, we brought the, we the weapon systems and all of the informants and all of, you know, probably a, b a battalion minus worth of advisors and 36th Commando and ICTF to the objective, which is south of Baghdad, probably what, they, probably what back then they would have called the, I think, Sunni Triangle. And your role in all of this yeah. as the task force commander is to facilitate the Iraqi planning or was it to develop the plan with your operations team and then plug yeah. the Iraqis into it? Yeah, so at this time, I would consider myself to be, I'm technically an advisor to the ISOF commander, but for all intents and purposes, I'm the commander. And that's okay because they're learning. Uh, they, they, help, they help me kind of facilitate what's going on. But we're, we're generally picking the targets. Later on, this all changes because this is kind of an evolutionary process of developing a partner force. But at this time, uh, most of the Americans are the ones that are doing the majority of the planning, the picking of the targets. You know, it's not, it's not just, you know, our assets like our firepower and our air that's getting us there. We're, we're probably doing most of the, the planning and calling the shots uh, as well. Now, as time goes on, that relationship changes because you're developing a force that actually is becoming uh, a lot better. And, and because of what's happening on the ground, you're giving them more responsibility and authority. You're actually becoming more of a hands-off advisor. At this point, um, we hadn't developed the force to that level. So my job, I'm, the, I'm a task force commander responsible for building this force and conducting operations against uh, both you know, AQI and uh, the Shia militia group set, but for, th for this mission, I would consider myself the ground force commander. Also, everything on the mission is mine. Where did you put yourself in the the helo sticks? Yeah, so I was on the I can't even remember how many forty sevens we had, but it was quite a few forty sevens. But yeah, I was in the first first helicopter, and I remember when I when we got on. Um, and this is where a habitual relationship and the air briefing is very important. And I positioned myself to be the first person out of the, the back of the, the 47, which I'm not sure that I would do again because that made me the person that controlled the, uh, the lever on the side of the door. So I had to get a quick class on how to use the lever and at what point I'm supposed to lower the gate. And, you know, obviously there's a guy on the, the gate with the 50 cal and you know, you have to lower it at a certain time. And I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm having to think through this. This is more than I'd probably want to do. It seems like a very simple thing that you're having to control this. But I'm like, I'm having to listen to the to the feed from the uh, the AC-130 who's looking at the objective. And then I'm like, geez, I don't even, 
okay, it's this, it's this toggle right here that controls this thing. Is there a lever, a safety lever on this thing that I have in control? How am I going to do this? You know, so I always remember that because I'm like, holy, I might hope I don't mess this up. Because if I lower the gate too much, they can't land right. I'm like, they picked the wrong person to control the gate here because I got too much stuff going on in my mind. I have to worry about this. You're in the bird. You figured out how the door worked. Yes. The bird touches down. Yes. What's going through your mind? Well, I do remember very clearly as we were flying in, you know, I'm listening to the pilots too because they're telling us where we're at. But we're flying, we're flying very low and you could, it's summertime, it's night, but the moon was out. And uh, the dust from the 47s are, you know, they're zipping along pretty low. And I, I remember the dust coming up. It was something that I'll never forget because it looks like it's riding on a, uh, a cloud of dust. It's so low to the, uh, the ground. So then I know we're getting close. But we, we, touched, we touched down. And you have to orient yourself, obviously, when you get out of the, the helicopter because you can't, you think you know where you're supposed to be going, you know, because we land, we land outside of this, this city. So you can kind of see, you get out, you run out. The first thing that strikes me is this helicopter landed in front of a wadi, you know, and of course the, the guy next to me, fell, he fell into the wadi. I could see him fall into this wadi. And then you see the areas kind of crisscross with these, you know, wadis because it's dry. There's no water in them, but like I'm thinking, how are we going to get our vehicles out of here? Because this place sucks. It's got like wadis running all over the place. Now, now we'd have probably looked at it with better ISR and could have seen like, hey, this is really we need to change where we're going to land because there's too many wadis here to get our vehicles out of. And then I could see the village off to the one side, and I'm thinking, okay, I think I could probably this assault force could walk. We'll get our vehicles to pull security on the outside that was kind of where our plan was and then I had to think about walking and not I wasn't too worried about shooting but I was more worried about <laughs> I was more worried about walking in the dark uh, with nods on and then falling into one of these like big ravines getting into the village just that was just on the on the infill part but that that's what I, I always I, I remember that very clearly you get out of the wadi yeah you walk into the village yeah where are you? Are you on point? Are you back in a command group? Yeah, well, obviously you can see all of the helicopters. They're landing at one time. Everybody knows where they're supposed to be going, you know, because it's pretty well rehearsed. Everybody's got different assault, you know, objectives that they're moving towards. We're, we're controlling. Everything looks like it's being controlled pretty well as far as like a linear kind of approach. Um, we divided up the city, whatever the attack angle was, like left, right. So you've got one element of ictf and they're moving to their assault objectives on one side 36 commandos moving to the other side i'm a bit in the middle with kind of a headquarters element i'm not in the lead uh because these guys are going they're going pretty quickly now to where you know their assault ob objectives i'm going to the place that we'd predetermined hey that's going to be the uh, the command post uh for this operation that's where i'm going with a security element uh so i'm not taking direct I don't have any assault. I don't have any assault objectives except to get to like the casualty collection point, you know, with the doctor, which is where we're going to kind of headquarters, and I'll control the fight from that area, you know, on the ground. Uh, and then depending on how the fight goes, you know, it could be one of these things where we get pinned, we get pinned up and can't get out of certain buildings, or it could just be something where hey, we're, we're taking sporadic gunfire, and we're just going to basically go from the uh, target to target you know, until we've cleared the objectives and maybe got some intel by doing tactical questioning uh, of people on the ground and figuring out, hey, okay, 
the enemy left, the enemy was here, he's not here, uh, he was expecting us, he wasn't, the guy that we need is over here. Um, so that's how a lot of these went. Of course, you don't know that at the time, but having, after having done lots and lots and lots of these, you start to figure it out. But at that time, that was kind of the goal uh, of what we were doing, was basically, I'm going to go occupy a command post. We're going to be able to see what's going on. I can check on either one of my um, uh, assault elements, uh, and then we will we'll figure out what's going on from there. But everybody pretty much knew, hey, we're going to work our way, whether it's south to north, north to south, you know, along a linear approach, keeping, you know, control lines, phase lines. Um, and we're, and the idea was, hey, capture prisoners, bring them out, let's figure out what's going on out here. How did the fight progress? I would say this fight actually went pretty mild. It wasn't too bad uh, in the sense of, like, we were taking gunfire. There was some gunfire. Um, that evening, I don't think anybody uh, was shot, which was good. Um, so as we started to take prisoners, we realized, yep, a lot of the, uh, the folks that we'd come after, some were still there, some had left. But as we went through, we were, we were actually able to get a foothold in, in the, uh, the village. Not a lot of uh, fighting. We're actually able to breach through a lot of the structures uh, that we were after. And what we were finding was, hey, large amounts of like rice, large amounts of like bedding, like more than belonged in one place, you know, like hundreds of beds in certain areas. So we're like, okay, this is obviously the right place. This looks like it's a support uh, zone for the, uh, for the enemy. We're taking lots of prisoners. And basically, when you're, you know, if you're, if you're going through this fast enough, you know, you're breaching, you're taking out prisoners, you're trying to ID these prisoners with the, uh, your informants that you have. Uh, and as you're doing this, you can hear some more fighting going on. You're hearing like breaching going on. There's a, I remember there were several fires that had been started from gunfire. Anytime you have like, you know, shooting, you know, this is always what's interesting about movies to me. Usually if they're shooting and it's in a city, all, you're always going to start a vehicle, you know, on fire. Uh, so everything that you're doing gets backlit by fire uh, in the night. Uh, anytime that you shoot down a street, particularly with a machine gun, it's going to start a gas tank on fire, and then you're going to have like this massive, you know, row of cars on fire. So anybody that's like breaching or using a sledgehammer to open a door, you know, everybody's running, and it's always backlit by by fire. So that just causes added c confusion, but it's just something that I I think people get used to. Just doing that but it's always going to happen and when you're doing that in training that never happens but if you do it in real life it always happens and then like there's the the obscuration of when bullets are firing in a city it causes huge amounts of uh, smoke and dust and fire so then you can't quite see the way you thought you're going to see the city so there's a lot of that going on we never had to use the uh, the ac-130 that night which i'm generally i'm fairly thankful for because that would have meant that we were in a really bad situation or people were getting away or whatever, you know. But as far as fights go, this was not like the worst fight that we'd seen. The reason that I, I highlight this fight is because it was just one of the first ones that we'd done as a pretty large element and the idea of like, if you're going to do a huge flyaway like this, you really need to figure out like, hey, where are you going to land? Uh, all these wadis, because here's one thing that I remember very clearly. A lot of vehicles did get stuck. They broke axles. We got a lot of our vehicles out of there, but uh, a lot of them did get 
had problems getting through that. We were, we were able to clear through the entire city. You know, we were able to take multiple prisoners, the right ones. We probably, I'm not sure what the enemy EKA rate was that night, but, you know, we'd killed a few people. And then I, I was going to highlight this. One of the problems that, that we had was, this isn't any, any kind of fight that we do, is we're clearing through here. You know, there's wounded civilians, right? Um, and this is always something that, you know, you think about is, okay, I, I guess I hadn't thought about it as much, but I think about it more now about, hey, what do you do when you wound civilians in a fight like this? You've discussed the casualty collection plan, and it sounds like the one you built was for your soldiers. When these civilians that are wounded start coming in, what's going through your mind? Yeah, well, I guess the first thing that I'm always thinking about is at this point in the war, we were doing, uh, we were doing things we probably wouldn't have done later on, like explosive breaching, which we did a little bit of in the beginning of the war, and as the war went on, we decided to not do it because explosive breaching is a pretty dangerous thing, both for yourself and for anybody that's on the other side of gates and doors and whatnot. And I, in this particular case, I think somebody got hurt from an explosive breach. Could have been just enemy gunfire. I don't exactly remember, but I know we were doing things that are pretty dangerous. And no, we hadn't really thought about what we we're going to do if a civilian uh, got wounded, uh, whether we caused it or the enemy caused it. And you have to think through like, okay, can I treat this person on the ground with what I have? Because we, we do need to do that. And we were doing that. And luckily I'd brought some very senior medics with me. And it's always a decision like, okay, how much help are we going to give, you know, these civilians? Because if the, if the guy tells me, my medic tells me like, I don't think that this individual is going to make it unless we get them to a, you know, a higher level of care then you have to make a decision. In this case, we only had really had one medevac helicopter that had a doctor on it, which is kind of a rare thing. But since it was such a large operation, we'd brought a doctor, a surgeon with us. And I don't even know, now I know a lot more about uh, surgery in the air and what a doctor can do, particularly if he's got the right setup. He can do, uh, you know, he can look inside your abdomen. He can cut you open and hey, if you're bleeding, because these, these are the worst kind of wounds really to have is something that's going on. You've been shot through the abdomen or something Something is bleeding in your abdomen and just the idea that a surgeon can do that. Uh, so you had you have to decide like with a civilian, you have to be like, okay, um, do I use up my entire, you know, high-end medical capability for this civilian? And then is it going to, it's an hour. I'm out of the, he's out of the fight for an hour. Oh, and by the way, I don't know what's going to happen on this objective. You know, we're not getting a whole lot of, you know, fight from the enemy right now, but that doesn't mean that the enemy is not out there, that he's not like going to basically, you know, roll up out of a, one of these wadis and come after us, um, or that he's not in the back side of this village, you know, or this town, and decide basically, okay, is the treatment that I'm going to give this person with our medics, who are good medics, is it enough, or do I risk like I don't, taking one of my, my doctor, my surgeon, you know, out of the fight in case one of our guys gets wounded. But it's a calculus that you're having to make. That, that particular night, it, uh, it bothered me a lot because I'm pretty sure that my doctor was telling me, hey, they're not going to make it. But if, you know, you decide to do this, you're out, you're out this asset. Now, luckily, they did make it. I decided not to pull the asset out. We were able to patch them up. And when we, when we uh, left, I think we took them with us. 
I think we probably waited another three hours to take them out, but we did take them out. Just like if we had a partner, like we, we talk a lot about the rules about partners and hey, if a partner gets wounded on the ground, what are you going to do? Do they get to come back to one of our hospitals? Do they get, or do they have to go to an Iraqi or an Afghan hospital? These are all things, these are things that we're thinking about. Usually with civilians, at this point, we weren't thinking about it as much, but that night, you know, I decided, hey, we're going to keep the fight going because it's, it's a too great a risk to us to not keep the fight going. Uh, and we will treat these civilians as best we can, the ones that are wounded. Um, and it all worked out. But I do, I do often think about uh, that just because, you know, a lot of things affect, a lot of things that you think about. And that was just one of the things that, I, that struck with me from that, that operation. The command decision there, that was yours or did you delegate to your sergeant major, your opso, hey, you make this call, you made that decision. That's my decision. Particularly, if you think about it, to basically take an asset that's that important, uh, which is our surgeon, to take that surgeon off of that objective, yeah, that would have been my call. Only my call. Was that an easy decision to make? Uh, no, that's not an easy, no, absolutely not easy. Now, thinking back on it, it seems like that would be a, a no-brainer, but... Uh, it's tough. It's tough to do a lot of these things where you're thinking about, I probably, you know, caused this person because I attacked or because I did this, whether they were shot by the enemy or shot by us or wounded by us or whatever. I probably caused this person, particularly if it's a, a child to be injured. You know, what's my responsibility to try to save this person? And you have to weigh that against, I think, hey, what's the what's good for my soldiers? What risk am I going to put them in? And what do I what do I owe this this person, I owe them the best medical care that I think I can get them at the time without putting my my force at excessive risk. And that's my calculus. After you made that decision, what happens in the battle? As we're going through, again, I think that we are we're clearing the remainder of the objective. This kind of happens right in the middle. We're clearing this objective. Uh, we're getting calls like you know. We have a lot of pro words that we're using. So as we're clearing through phase lines, we're talking about, you know, everybody's up. We just cleared this objective. We've got X number of AK-47s, X number of, you know, uh, medical stuff found. It looks like insurgents were here. We've got target Y. We've, we've located him. So at this point, we're figuring out, okay, how much of this stuff we're going to consolidate at a certain point and figure out, okay, how many prisoners do we have because we wanted to bring back prisoners? How many can we afford to take back with us? What's the material? What, what can we destroy on the objective? How should we destroy it, right? Should we throw it all into to a hole, use explosives to blow up all these weapons? What are we going to do? Uh, how are we going to do all this? So at that point, that's what we're trying to figure out, kind of a consolidate gains piece on the objective while making sure that, you know, we're not counterattacked, you know, by the enemy, that he's definitely, you know, we have... Uh, the objective is secure. We don't believe that the enemy is going to counterattack, that we have basically blocked off our entire, you know, any egress routes, any exit routes. We've locked down the objective. We're feeling pretty secure about this. We bought ourselves a little bit of time, but we do not want to sit on this objective for a whole lot longer. So we're figuring out, hey, okay, we're going to have to get back. We're going to have to call the birds back in. We're going to have to land. Birds are coming back in, in whatever. We're going to make the call. We're going to say half hour. So in one half hour, we're going to have to be in PZ posture and getting on those helicopters and getting out here with everything, everybody, and everything that we want to uh, bring off this objective. That's basically what we're figuring out the last kind of point before we uh, make this call. How much pre-planning had you done for that? 
in that particular phase, I think that uh, I think we're a lot better. This is just my pers perspective. We're probably a lot better at figuring out how we're going to get to an objective, how we're going to attack an objective, the the kind of the phase lines and the, the breakdown of the objective. We're a lot better at that than figuring out, okay, now we're going to withdraw from the objective, because this is a raid, basically, how we're going to withdraw from the objective in an orderly fashion and get back on the helicopters again. That was probably a part that we'd rehearsed, but I will just say that uh, that's not the part of the plan that most people are rehearsing. Uh, I would rehearse that more now because I'm a little bit more experienced about the whole thing, and I would give that equal shrift. But the problem is when you're exfilling an objective like that, that's the point in the fight when you're the most tired, uh, and it's the point in the fight when you're probably the most mentally like frazzled, and you're, you're actually coming off the objective. If, if everybody is not wounded, that's probably the best case scenario. So you're having to account for people. If you're, if you're attacking the objective, you're not so worried about accounting for people, but you are. But when you're getting on those helicopters and you're figuring out, okay, is everybody up and making sure that I have everybody that's a pretty big deal. And then you're, then if you're bringing prisoners, you're making sure that, hey, they've been searched, they are secured, uh, we have the materials that we're looking for. That is a big, big deal, I think, and one that I didn't probably give enough attention to at that point, but now I you know, would give a lot of attention to it, knowing, and I have in the past, but thinking about that, particularly, particularly if you're flying, like if you're just flying, like we were that night, a lot of raids we would drive and fly, a lot of raids we would drive. It, it's a big deal, but when the helicopter blades are flying, you can't really hear anything. You've got your Peltors on, you're trying to listen to different channels and trying to figure out, okay, are you up, are you up, are you up? Uh, then it's a bigger deal. So there's, you know, there's vehicles that you have to account for because they're out cordoning off the backsides of the objective. So they're having to drive around uh, and get back to where they're at. And I, I know particularly on that night, one of those vehicles had hit a uh, one of those wadis. Broke. They had. We had vehicles that had broken axles going out from the helicopters, and we had one particularly that we couldn't get unstuck from a, uh, a wadi that night. And I'm not exactly sure if we ever got that vehicle or if we just decided that we would strip it and leave it. Which sometimes you have to make the call to do, and that would be my call also, just to say, hey, we're going to leave that vehicle. We're going to destroy it. We're going to get. We're going to whatever, thermite it, whatever we were going to do to the vehicle, uh, and just leave it because we can't recover it and the helicopters run out of gas and we only have a certain amount of time. I mean, that, and that's the thing about the exfil portion that I think we all, I've learned a lot about exfilling and how important it is to have a great, a good plan because again, when you're exfilling, that's when things are going to have happened to you that I didn't plan on this part happening and then you're gonna have to do a little bit of a, okay, now I'm gonna have to you know, call an audible on this and I'm gonna have to do this. This wasn't something that we thought about, but it happened, so now we're gonna have to change plans like you were going on this stick uh, uh no no you're going on this stick because we have too many prisoners on this uh, helicopter um and we got to even out the loads so you're, you're actually doing switching around you know with, with the blades running and everything else in the middle of the night when everybody's super tired other than the vehicle getting broken on the way out yeah did you run into these type of issues on the lz yeah all the time Absolutely. Particularly because I think we, we had brought back at least 10 prisoners and I think we had decided that we would divide the prisoners up between the helicopters and we were figuring out, okay, again, which helicopters the prisoners were going to go on. I think we, we didn't think that we were going to take that many prisoners. So we had to, 
instead of just one helicopter with prisoners on, we said, hey, we're going to divide the, the prisoners up and put um, the prisoners on different helicopters, and that was not something that we planned on doing. Uh, we had to put the seats up, I think, because we didn't have enough room with the vehicles in there. Uh, so, yes, we ad-libbed the entire way. And I think at the end, when we flew out, uh, we couldn't sit. Uh, only the prisoners were sitting. Everybody else was standing uh, over the, the prisoners, and we had to stand, and we had to stand on the tail of the, uh, the 47 because there wasn't any more room. That was not something we had planned to do, but we ad-libbed that on the, uh, the Exville scene. When you got back to Baghdad, what was the general mood of the team? What was the general mood of, you, of your staff? What was going on in your head? I think on that particular mission, I think we were all very, very happy about the outcome. Um, again, didn't take any casualties. I mean, and I, and I would consider if we took, like, lightly wounded, that would have been a pretty good outcome also. I mean, I, I, I always think about things in terms of, like, how many casualties did we take? Did we accomplish our objective? Did we get the targets that we're after? Did we, um, you know, inflict casualties on the enemy? Was this mission worth it? You know, there's a psychological piece to all that. And I think in this particular mission, everything was, was worth it. And then, and then at the end of the day, we had to process all these prisoners and figure out, okay, what do they know? How do we, how do we get this intelligence? How do we go through the targeting cycle to do this all over again? Uh, and how do we share the intelligence? So at the end of the day, even though I don't want to say that we made some mistakes, there's always some learning stuff going on. This was a, a big operation, one of the first big operations that we'd, we, would, we had done as an ISOF brigade, and I think everybody thought that was a pretty big mission success from below me all the way to above me. Because, again, if you're able to take this large battalion worth of Iraqis with American advisors, you're able to basically go into a city, uh, conduct a pretty large-scale raid, throughout the night, throughout a period of darkness, take prisoners and flick casualties on the enemy, and then basically get on helicopters and leave again. That's a pretty good, a pretty good operation. And we're able to do that over and over and over and again. And that was kind of the model of, of what we were building. When you look back at that mission, yeah. how did you adapt your leadership style afterwards? Uh, we got a lot better, I think, at... Uh, rehearsing you know we weren't we weren't bad at rehearsing but just the idea of you know if it's a the bigger the operation you know we use sand tables right we're going to use the tape uh a tape uh, uh taped up objectives we're going to do all kinds of things we're going to make sure that our iraqis understand everything the idea of just uh if you know the objective that you're going to if you if you have the luxury of uh doing that that you should take the time and rehearse it very, very carefully. I think also, at this point, I will just say the idea of using ISR, which we kind of take for granted right now, uh, and in this case, in this little story, like the AC-130 is kind of our, our ISR. But as, as time goes on, we're able to incorporate you know, ISR and use it uh, to greater and greater advantage. So what we, what we used to do, and we still do this, but you know, you can use vehicles with cameras in them to look at an objective you can you can hire indigenous scouts to do these kinds of things for you so that you know what you're going to see on an objective but the idea of having you know a dedicated you know isr that's actually like you could say looking at an objective at this time we would say that period of darkness you know you're looking at it like a half hour or maybe three hours before you get on the objective that was pretty good at that time right 
if you think about what, what we can do now, you might have ISR dedicated to look at an objective for three days or periodically over a month. And then you're really, really developing what we would call pattern of life on an objective so that you have a much better idea of what you're seeing when you get out there. Just this idea of like this evolution of like knowledge of the enemy and knowledge of the objective as you're going into it. To me, that's not quite, uh, it might be revolutionary, but it's at least high end evolutionary, like your knowledge as a commander of what you're going to see on an objective. And that may not always be the case. Maybe maybe in the next wars that we fight, we're not going to be able to see uh, objectives like this. But this was kind of the beginning stages for us, at least, of being able to see, see an objective. Okay, so now this isn't just something where you're going to do like a react to contact or just a raid and you don't know what you're seeing. You're actually getting real-time feedback on what's on the objective. And as time goes on, just these ideas of how am I going to incorporate that into the fight? How can I make you know, changes to my plan based on, okay, the ISR shows there's 30 people on this objective uh, and not just 10. The ISR shows I'm, what I'm seeing is a wedding party, not a, you know, Al-Qaeda, you know, human resources convention, you know, all these kinds of things. So you're getting much better real-time, you know, feedback um, just by using your assets. And then at this point in the war, I would also say that we were a very human intelligence-driven organization. Uh, and the human intelligence is saying, okay, the enemy looks like this. This is the bad guys. This is where they're at. We got a lot better, a lot better uh, over time because we started to be able to use technology to back up this human intelligence, whether it's the Imint, you know, which is what, what a lot of the ISR platforms or an AC-130 can provide you, or even a helicopter can provide you. But there's SIGINT, and how do you, how do you configure SIGINT? How do you task your, your human element to figure out, like, what's going on, on on that objective, or what personality are you, you after? And how do you, how do you figure out, like, the, pre, the pre-fight piece? How do you develop that target, not just with an ISR soak, but just with all the intelligence capability that you had, so that when you go to that target, you know a lot about that target. You know a lot about that objective. And that could be, you know, that could be a city, an entire city. Or that could be a section of a city. That could be a house. That could be a village. Which is the idea of how much do you know about that objective? Is there an IED belt in between you and that city? Is there a minefield in between you? Do they have tanks? Have you seen tanks? Like, why is there a big hole in that the side of that building? Is that where, does a tank roll in and out of that thing? Because that's what it looks like to me. You know, all these kinds of things that just through, you know, I've heard it's sets and repetitions of, of combat, you're figuring out, okay, how do I incorporate all of the, the human, the human aspect of this with the technological aspect of this? How do I, and then if you're talking about the partner piece, because partnered, partnered fighting is what we do normally, you have to say like, okay, how did my, how did my Kurdish forces, uh, how, how well did they do? How well did the Iraqi forces do? Am I picking, just like I do for the Special Warfare Center in school, am I picking the right people because we have a selection? Am I training them right? Do I have training problems? Um, is everybody pointing their weapons in the right direction? Are, we, are they securing the objective the way they're supposed to? Are there any, any other problems, right? Are they treating prisoners humanely? Uh, all these kinds of things that you can... It's, I hate to equate this to a game, uh, but if you think about like a football game where you'd watch film afterwards and you're trying to like do an AAR on this to figure out like how do we get better, how can we get better, how can we improve, I think that is the way that, that we approach uh, a lot of what we do. And luckily, in this particular fight, since it's a raid, 
you know, we were able to like, you know, do over a period of darkness, do this, uh, objective, basically do this raid, conduct this raid. We come back, we're pro as some, we're processing the prisoners. Everybody else is kind of conducting the AR and figuring out, okay, do we do that? I think we did it. Okay. But how can we improve? How do we get better? How do we make the next one even better? And we go on during that rotation to do multiple and multiple and multiple raids like that because there are lots of targets. As time goes on in, in Iraq, the enemy changes. You know, then it gets a little harder to do these big, gigantic uh, type of raids because the enemy is much smarter. He becomes more uh, condensed. He's uh, decentralized. And then you're kind of back to going after like very small um, houses. And it's a very urban fight. When I go to Afghanistan, it becomes more of a rural fight. Where, you're, where in Afghanistan, you're able to go to areas like, if you wanted a fight, you just have to fly to a certain place and you're going to get a fight. I mean, it's, it's that kind of a thing. You have to be much more uh, careful about where you're going because you can be overwhelmed by the enemy who owns huge chunks. Uh, and there's a lot of places in, Afga in Afghanistan that don't matter. In Iraq, it was different because kind of every, everywhere kind of mattered at, at a specific amount, and it was kind of manageable in some ways. Afghanistan was very was different, and you had to figure out, okay, now I'm in a different area. The fight against ISIS is different because ISIS is actually like a they're a terrorist organization, but they're also a, an army, and this army is you know different than just a uh, an insurgent force it's fighting like a world war one or world war two style army it's conducting counterattacks. it's using armored vehicles it's using all the types of technology so then it's like okay this is this is different too and how do we fight this and they're using deep fields of uh barrier material including landmines and so then it all becomes and you're just you're learning how to incorporate all these things that have happened to you before in these fights and how you how you can look at the enemy through ISR through human intelligence and figure out okay how do I how am I going to deal with this with my partners that fight that we just talked about was one of the first that wasn't the first one I've been involved in but that was one of the first you know real air assault operations kind of deep into an enemy area where we're putting together lots of this new technology and it was a good a good learning piece for me Major General Robertson, thank you so much for being on this episode of The Spear and imparting the lessons that you learned on that objective in Salman Pak. Appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.